Oh my god, they go even further. <laughs> this is insane. Are those new headphones? No, those are mine. Oh, nice. There's going to be an unbelievable amount of earwax on these. <laughs> oh, you don't it's, clean your ears, do you? Oh, no. Oh, it's disgusting. You are cleaning those. <laughs> oh, it's so gross. <laughs> I'm your host, Dave Alley. I'm Katie Sprinkle. I'm married to Dave. And I'm Dave's brother, Luke. I produce the show. And today we are in the closet studio to talk about Dave and Katie's experience just a couple weeks ago on one of the most iconic climbs on Earth. But first, a word about our sponsor. This episode is made possible by Rhino Skin Solutions. When I was just starting out climbing, I really didn't care what sort of shoes I was wearing since I was always on easy terrain and my footwork was pretty bad anyway. From there though, it wasn't too long until I started to feel gated by shoes that were worn out and fit poorly enough to make my feet hurt. This threshold of starting to appreciate which shoes help you climb the best is one that most climbers encounter fairly early on. This is in part because your shoes really are that important. They provide half of the very small interface between you and the rock, a handful of square inches of sticky rubber at most is really all that's keeping you on the wall. So it's easy to see how much of an impact you can have on your climbing by dialing in things like shape, fit, which type of rubber, etc. The exact same thing is true for your hands and fingers, which form the only other equally tiny contact surface area you have with the rock. And yet we routinely leave money on the table by giving zero thought to keeping our fingers and hands healthy and ready to perform. For most intermediate and advanced climbers, one of the biggest opportunities to sharpen your game is to start taking an active role in managing those details. Keeping your skin dry but not too dry and ensuring that you have the right amount of elasticity to latch holds on the first try without tearing your skin can be transformative to your climbing. With precisely this in mind, Rhino Skin founder Justin Brown set out to design a small range of non-greasy sprays and lotions which work in concert to keep your skin maximally healthy throughout your climbing calendar. This allows you to customize your regimen based on your own skin, much as getting a good fit in your climbing shoes is crucially important yet different for everyone. Regardless of your experience or ability level, Rhino Skin grants you control over an important aspect of your climbing and allows you to train harder, climb better, and recover faster. This is true whether you're climbing sharp crimps on a V13 boulder or viciously gritty plastic holds on a 5.9 route indoors. If you climb with your hands, I strongly recommend checking out what you can do for those hands over at rhinoskinsolutions.com. If you use promo code BLISTER when you check out, you'll get not only 10% off your order, but Rhino will also donate an additional 10% to the Access Fund. So get over there and get more out of your climbing and support both this podcast and climbing access everywhere. Today is a little bit different than normal. Today we are sitting down and talking about uh, you guys having climbed arguably the most famous route on earth, Reefer Madness in Clear Creek Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you yeah, guys found so, the nose. Yeah, audio trip report, kind of. Yeah. I guess. Totally. Yeah, super cool. So Katie and I were in Yosemite a week and a half ago, I guess. And, you know, Luke and my parents were there were taking care of the baby. And um, Luke actually came out as well for yeah. a few days, which is sweet. Yeah, um, cool. And uh, yeah, we it was it was a quick-ish trip. You know, we only really had five days on the ground, so um, we had to get pretty lucky with crowds and and weather and all that. But we did, and which we did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we got um we got really lucky with those factors. Um, that's mo the that represents the majority of the obstacle that you can't really bring under your control, right? Like you sure. can prepare and stuff like that, and kind of break the route down into bite-sized chunks as much as you want but but those factors are kind of 
always going to be there for, yeah. for such a busy route. And so, yeah, it was super fortunate for sure. I mean, you know, we went in September in part because we wanted to avoid the the rush of October or late September and October. We tried to stack those odds in our favor, but you know, even so, I think you know the, our experience on the route was like I came away with it with a sense that you it does not take much to have a real traffic jam on that route, and so it doesn't have to be totally packed with people for it to be like quote unquote full. Yeah, I was yeah. surprised to hear Tom Evans was saying the traffic was really light when I felt like it was actually pretty heavy while we were up there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I was I've heard from or seen posts from other folks recently saying that up until a few days ago, basically El Cap was totally empty. Right. And it's just like, oh, man, that's wild. And, I, you know, I've seen it busier myself the last two Octobers when I've been there. And, you know, you look up at the nose and you see just literally dozens of people between the ground and the stove legs, which is the first, like, let's say eight or nine pitches. But, yeah, you know, even even so when we, when we did it, there was, would you say there were like four teams doing it wall style and then a couple in a day teams yeah uh four including us and then one in a day team passed climbed through us at the on our last pitch actually right yeah and that's you know that's not too too bad um you know we were able to keep the clusters to a minimum and stuff so um so that was pretty cool yeah it it was really really sweet that's so crazy yeah it was wild it was um i will say that I, I think that if I were to do it again, I felt like September was a super good time to go for, for the reasons that we were just talking about with the crowding and so forth. But it was hot. It was quite hot. Like, I get why October is the busy month and September is not. Um, it was really steamy on the wall, especially yeah, the first the, day. The sun was intense. Obviously, yeah. no shade at all. But yeah. Yeah, yeah that was... that Dave was. had a sweet looking hat with flaps and <laughs> I had a little hoodie and those were crucial yeah super important for sure because you know even you try to be good about reapplying sunscreen to your face and your arms or whatever but you just don't that i mean maybe i would reapply sunscreen once and stuff like that and you know i came away not getting too too roasted but yeah it really um i felt like the penalty was really in in our our water consumption that's kind of really where we felt it for sure Yeah. yeah 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 um so, you know, I mean, going in September is not this like, oh, I can't believe nobody's waiting in this line. <laughs> you know, there's a penalty for it a little bit for sure. Um, but, you know, for a route like the nose where there's so much crowding, uh, you know, carrying an extra gallon or two of water seems like a, a reasonable thing to consider if it means you have half the number of people on the route. Nice. Um, so let's just start. Uh, let's just start with the beginning. Like, when did the nose first get in your sights? The short answer is like, you know, many, many years ago, even maybe before I was really a climber. It's hard to even dip a toe into climbing without hearing about, you know, climbing on in Yosemite or, you know, zooming in a little bit further, climbing on the nose and that kind of thing. And but it's not something that I ever really thought that I would kind of get around to doing myself. Um, and I didn't guess well, I didn't. we did talk about it. We made like a tick list of or, or a list of things that we were would love to do before we had kids. Mm-hmm. And there were definitely a lot of those things that we didn't tick off yet. But uh, yeah. that was one of them that we had talked about. Yeah, it's true. That was yeah. that was one of the biggest ones. Um, and we at that time, though, I I don't think I thought I could do it. I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Took, I mean, I agree. I think that's what took the longest time was to think that was something that was doable for. I think we we st- we probably uh, like stated that as a goal maybe like three years ago. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. 
And at that time, I think it was probably, we knew that it was a huge reach, kind of like a, we should start down the years long path of getting ready for this route. Once Russell was born, we thought, okay, maybe we can take like one last stab at, at this multi-day thing. And we, we, we internally debated between the two of us about, we you know, when and how long time we need to prepare and so forth. And eventually we just decided that we were going to try to move the date way up and, um, and not wait longer than we have to, and just, you know, try to work on getting ready over the summer and, and just seeing how, how we did. Yeah. Um, I think we decided to like seriously commit and go for it. Maybe Russ was, it was definitely after he was born Yeah, yeah. and a few months into his life maybe. And yeah, we decided to really gun for it. I guess I should state that, um, we, in the, in those, in that three years since we started talking about maybe doing this, I mean, we've done a bunch of wall climbing and, and that sort of thing. So a lot of the preparation and, and like turning this into turn, going from, this is something that I think would be amazing to do someday to, okay, we're going to set a date and book tickets to try to climb the nose. That transition happened, I think, but because we had had a bunch of experiences on, on other walls. So Katie and I did a wall together, which was our, both of our first big wall in Zion. We climbed lunar ecstasy. And then I went back and the next year and climbed lurking fear, which is a route on the Western face of El Cap, uh, with a different partner. And then, um, I went and I guess climbed another route in Zion with uh with a third a third partner. Um and so by the time we got ready to do the nose, the nose was gonna be would have nose was my fourth big wall and Katie's second. And um and I think that was, you know, one of the major takeaways from the route for me was um the the level of I guess just the low level of preparedness of the median nose team, for example, on the route, there's these teams who are doing it in 11 hours or six hours, or, you know, even like 18 hours and stuff like that, who are super dialed. And, you know, they're like climbing at a really elite level. If you don't consider those in a day teams who are super dialed or the guided teams who are maybe a little bit slower, but they really know what they're doing and they're moving very steadily and very competently. The, private parties like us who are doing it wall style. I think that there was a lot of people that we talked to, certainly everybody, the other two teams that we shared the wall with. And then a lot of people that we've talked to anecdotally had said that the nose was their first wall for both, both parties on the team. And, um, I can't not recommend doing that enough. You know, I think that's just a terrible approach, um, for a whole ton of reasons, but, um, yeah, for, for us, I think it was a, like a big, big part of, of just getting around to the idea that this is something that we want to take a crack at. It was, was doing a couple big walls elsewhere, both to be like, okay, well, you know, we're working out the kinks on these other less crowded, more accessible walls where it's just like less laborious to retreat and that kind of thing. But then in addition, I think that it's worth kicking the tires on aid climbing and wall climbing in general. I mean, a lot of people are super psyched to to have climbed the nose, if that makes sense. But aid climbing, I think, is not necessarily, like a lot of people don't find it to be all that fun. 
you know, it's like not that cool when, when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it. And so I think it's worth doing a shorter wall and just asking yourself, like, do you even have any interest in this kind of climbing? Like, is this fun at all? Or is it just work? Cause there are definitely times when it just feels like, you know, work. Totally. Yeah. So it was a lot more about, um, preparing for the, the systems than it was physical fitness. Certainly. Well, yeah. I think the answer is probably different for both of us. Cause I was coming back from being pregnant where I was as weak as I've ever been or weaker than I can remember ever being. And so for me, the physical part was huge and it was like the most conservative, organized, purposeful effort I've made to get in shape quickly and, um, and in, yeah, organized and disciplined way than I've ever yeah, done before. So shit. I had, a, I had a long way to come physically and that was a huge part for me. And I, and of course the systems piece was big too and yeah. learning how to do lower outs and <clears throat> all the other shenanigans, um, was a big piece towards the end, but I'd say the the biggest part of the effort for me was physical. Yeah, I mean, going from being pregnant to climbing the nose in eight months is fucking it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's super crazy. Like... <laughs> I think for a lot of people who stay very strong and fit in their pregnancy, maybe not. But, you know, I thought I did, but I, de- I did not. I was so weak. So, yeah. the um, In regards to all, like, the rope and system stuff, it was... It was a good, we, we definitely did a lot of practice, a lot of reading, a lot of watching videos and a lot of going to the cliff and, and rehearsing. And then we set, built an anchor in the backyard that we were practicing stuff on. Um, and it was mostly, you know, we'd done, like I said, we had done, done some aid climbing before, like, a, you know, not a ton, but we had done an, several routes between us that were comparable in difficulty to the nose, if that makes sense. Maybe nothing that's qu- quite as long, but you know, we, the, it's not going to like the, the route didn't represent um, a step up in terms of difficulty at all, but it was the sheer length of the route made it such that you can just waste so much time doing nothing, you know, at each belay. If you, if it takes you however many minutes extra at each belay to you build the anchor. Okay. The haul bag is going to go here. The follower is going to jug the line, which I want to be over here. And then, you know, you just a lot going on you get the ropes tangled and then you spend two or three minutes untangling them so that it feeds cleanly when you start the next pitch. I mean, two or three minutes over 30 pitches is like all of a sudden a lot of time. Um, and that's just one, I mean, there's dozens of things like that where you can, eat up comparable amounts of time and two to three minutes to get out of big tangle. That's <laughs> you're probably spending a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yep. Totally. Um, or, you know, for example, uh, there was a team in front of us, on the, for the first two days who we passed on the second day and they, um, they really struggled with the King swing, which I think is a, a common bottleneck for people. But part of their problem was there, they had set up the swing in a suboptimal way. So the climber was swinging from the furthest right bolt, which is the, uh, that's a, the furthest point away from where you're trying to get to. And so he had to swing further. And so he was really kind of, um, struggling with that a little bit. And then his second sort of miffed the lower out off of the top of the boot by not giving himself enough lower outline. So he couldn't really get over to the belay. And then they didn't, once he was down there, he felt like he was kind of stuck. And so then, and they didn't really know how to get out of the situation. Um, and so 
you know, that, that probably consumed, I think that probably wasted between those two things, between the leader struggling on the swing and the second struggling a little bit on the low out. I'm, I think that wasted an hour, oh, I would at say, least. Yeah. yeah, at least, and maybe, maybe an hour and a half or two. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we were waiting, there was a German team waiting behind us. And so, you know, that was like six of us who all lost an hour you know, waiting for, for this one thing. And it was just one pendulum and then one lower out. Um, but in the lower out, you know, the guy couldn't, couldn't figure out how to get out of the situation. Um, and I was standing on top of the boot. And so I kept, yet I kept trying to call down to him and suggest that his partner who's over just around the corner at the next belay station, throw him, you know, like a loop of their lead line or part of their lower outline or, or whatever, and then reel him in and help him, you know, with this lower out. Um, but they didn't, uh, they were a Japanese team. And so they didn't, you know, speak very, they, their English was, was good when you had a lot, when you're standing at a ledge with them and you had a time to kind of work through your communication. But, you know, when I'm calling down to him and as windy, it was like, you know, it was, it was just too much of a barrier. And so um, the guy ended up putting in a cam behind the left side of the boot and then totally untying from the rope hanging on this one cam and then pulling the rope through and then tying back in and then like finishing the lower out and and katie and i were just like oh my god this is it was like kind of frightening to watch a little bit you know especially because we were just calling down to him like no no don't do that um there's there's just a much safer way blah 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 um but then not being able to really get that message through and so it was um, yeah, I was, you know, we spent a lot of time t talking to these two and they were super nice and it was actually really fun to share the wall with them. Cause they were such, they were such like, you know, cool people. And they were so excited to be there. They'd come all the way from Japan. The, doing this route was like their dream. Yeah. Like he a, said that a lot when he was repeating his attempts on the King swing, he yeah. said, this is my dream. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, yeah, really pretty cool. Yeah. And, and so it was, you know, on the one hand, you really, um, you're torn between these strong feelings of like really wanting to cheer them on and root for them. But when you're behind them, it's also hard not to be like, you're, you're killing our chances and this German team behind us, like our chances at, um, finishing this route, you know? Um, and so it was a little bit like, I'm really psyched for you guys. Like you're, you're doing it and you're working your ass off and, and like, you're making it happen, but it was both of their first walls and they had just read stuff online and, um, and they were slow. I mean, they direct aided almost every pitch. I mean, I think they did the stove legs in ladders, um, which is not the fastest way to do those pitches. And, um, and, and that was a good example of, you know, they spent an extra day than they had planned on the route um, which is fine, but this is a good example of, you know, when I was saying earlier about how little it takes to create a bottleneck, you know, this one team can be a little underprepared, spend too much time on the King swing. And maybe they spent a little extra time at the stove legs and the great roof or something like that. And, and then all of a sudden teams below you have to bail because, you know, you've wasted half a day and people are running out of water or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it's hard to not have mixed feelings about this stuff. And I guess this is true of every classic route that gets crowded, you know, because there's so much trophy hunting that goes on in climbing. And I mean, we're guilty that we flew out there to climb the nose and stuff. But um, I, I think that it does make it really tempting for people to go and try routes that they are maybe ready for, but not 
Um, right. There's no like gatekeeper not, for. Yeah. Yeah. Like, definitely. Was it frustrating kind of like trying to prepare for so long, knowing that there's like a variable like that that could. Yeah, I think we were really conscious of trying not to put too pre- too much pressure and the fact that we had prepared too much, I think, and maybe we felt like we get one shot at this because when else are we going to try to get child care in Yosemite yeah, Village? In this, <laughs> Yeah, and we felt like this was our shot kind of, um, but we, I at least tried really hard not to put too much pressure on it because... Yeah, and honestly, there's lifetimes of amazing stuff to climb there, and so it wouldn't have been a bad trip if we we hadn't uh, gotten on there. But, yeah, for sure, that pressure was there for me. We really wanted it pretty bad. So, yeah, and I guess in, to answer that question, I think that one of the ways that I felt like I was able to beat back against that um, stress of, like, knowing that those factors are there is to just show up with a whole bunch of backup options. I mean, you know, this is getting back a little, I don't want to like totally beat this point to death about, um, about, you know, the more classic the route is like the more ready to climb it. You, you should be maybe, but, um, you know, we, we showed up with, we showed up prepared to climb the South a or the triple direct or Zodiac or whatever, you know, as backup options and stuff. Um, and so that, that was sort of the outlet for me, it's like, if we get there in the noses, totally bananas, then there's three or four other routes that we can climb with the gear that we've brought. Um, you know, semi reasonably, we could have done lurking fear. I, you know, I probably would have chosen to not repeat a route just because it was fun to do new stuff. But, um, it's one thing if you, if you go and you're really only capable of climbing the nose, which is one of the easier routes on the wall, um, then it makes it harder for you to, you know, to, to take other options if if some if something's going on on the route or whatever it's like you know this is a major problem on the diamond in rocky mountain where um the approach is super long people oftentimes underestimate how much the atmospherics of the route contribute to its difficulty like the altitude and the cold and how long the hike is to get there and how dicey the approach of the north chimney can be and stuff and so when you arrive at the base of the route you're already like pretty worked and then the route is quite tough. You know, it's vertical climbing at 14,000 feet and so forth. And if you show up and you really want to climb the diamond and you can only climb the casual route, then you have no choice but to get in line behind whatever gong show is like going on on the wall, right? But you're going to have a much more successful trip. It's a much higher percentage shot if you show up with the rack and the experience to climb like six different routes on the wall. Um, and so, I, you know, I... I would recommend to people both for their own sake, but also for, you know, as a general courtesy, like if you, if you have the opportunity, it's worth it to over-prepare a little bit or to at least show up willing to do other stuff. You know, I totally get why people want to climb the nose, you know, it's just super classic. Um, but the other stuff on El Cap is amazing, right? Like that whole wall is incredible. And so I, you know, I, I think that there's a, a tendency towards, um, having blinders on maybe but um, totally yeah um it's a lot of pressure to to work have like this kind of project on the horizon what are the kind of strengths and weaknesses of like having a big project like this with your spouse um on the day-to-day it was helpful to be 
you know, for me to be able to say, okay, I have a workout at this time and um, to have the Dave support me and be like, okay, I got Russ, you go and uh, let's prioritize that. And um, so in the lead up, I think it was helpful to have kind of have both of us have eyes on the prize, so to speak. And um, I think we actually I was a little worried about how it would go when we were stressed out, because in the past, to be totally honest we kind of um pick at each other and snap at each other a lot when we get really stressed out it doesn't always go well and um I don't know that there was anything that we could have done to specifically prepare for that other than be aware that that was gonna potentially be an issue and it went um I'd say that was this is our best trip in that respect in terms of like our team dynamics when things were really stressful um I felt like yeah we did great and we had a it was really important to maintain a a good and a positive attitude and um somehow that didn't really crack it was great yeah we we uh like genuinely had a lot of fun together and uh, i think did a good job of supporting each other even in the super tense or frustrating moments which inevitably there there are many so yeah that is awesome i'm super happy to hear that Yeah. yeah it's um it does feel a little bit to your point like you have a lot of eggs in one basket because it can be really helpful. You know, you know how to be supportive to the other person, blah, 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 blah. But then also like if you, you know, if you each just get frustrated in whatever, uh, you know, objectively frustrating moment, well, then you have to live with that argument or whatever. Right. Um, It's just harder to leave whatever on the wall and be like, Oh yeah, we were just frustrated. Um, as compared to if you have like a normal climbing partner or, um, yeah. It, I don't know. A normal climbing partner. I feel like I try harder to maintain a facade of like, <laughs> this is going great. I'm having fun. Yeah. Whereas I true. don't even try with you often, but <laughs> I think this time we actually, yeah, we did. Yeah. Try no, it was hard. And yeah. I mean, I yeah. think we also, it was, um, it was easier to feel like we were going to succeed or at least not going to succeed, but we, we like knew what we were doing. Like it felt the whole time that we were on the route, it felt appropriate for us to be there. And that for me, I think is a big, um, it's, it's a really big factor to not be like, is it safe for us to be here? Are we, you know, doing something that's like, are we pushing it too far? Right. Um, if the answer is no, then it's easier, it's easier to just enjoy the experience which in turn makes, you know, it's this positive feedback loop, you know, it makes it easier to, um, you take a moment when you need it and, and just be, you know, lighter hearted, even when you're tired and that kind of thing. If you don't also have this burden of like, are we doing something that's dangerous or. And that became easier as we got farther up the wall. The first day for me, for sure, I was still super intimidated and, um, yeah, having thoughts about, gosh, should we be doing this? And, um, yeah, thinking about Russ a lot, but for some reason that got easier. Maybe it's just because we had less to go, and I was like, oh, we're on pace. We got this, and it's easier to sit back and relax and, and be genuinely more positive rather than, yeah. Yeah, also I, I think, um, you know, we climbed with – so the first day we passed a – in the morning of the first day we passed a guided team who was just getting started um, – and then we shared El Cap Tower, the Bibi at El Cap Tower, with uh, the J- a Japanese team and a German team. And they were all four of them were were super super friendly and and really 
good to share the wall with, but they were also, both teams were just slower moving than we were. And it's like kind of weird because normally like having a slow moving team in a route like that, you'd be like, well, fuck. But, um, it was almost like confidence inspiring in a way. Cause you're like, well, these teams are going to, they're going for it. They're going for it. They're <laughs> yeah. going to top this route out, you know? Yeah. And so you're like, well, then we're definitely going to top this route out. You know, there's no way that like, I just don't want to, like when I was having moments of like, Ooh, are we moving fast enough? Is this the right thing for us to be doing? Blah, blah, blah. It was easier to look over and be like, well, those guys are still going up. So like in no universe, am I going to allow those guys to finish and us walk away, you know, (laughs) and not, not like, not in a competitive way, but it's more like I just continually like recalibrating where I was relative to, you know, the spectrum of, of climbers who are relative to where you need to be to be on this route. You know, it's more like beating back against the conspiracy theories that I was telling myself about how unprepared we were and how the route's too big and like, blah, blah, blah. It's not, we were, we were fine. Um, but it was helpful for me to have the ammunition of looking at these other parties and being like, you know, we're totally like, we're in the zone that we need to be in. Well, yeah. So that's the other big aspect I wanted to ask about was those kind of that self doubt must be amplified so much by being new parents as well. I imagine, um, it must feel like there's kind of a new element there of personal responsibility and kind of safety yeah for sure i mean i I don't feel like we were doing really like cutting edge or wild and dangerous stuff but it's easy for the exposure to really get to you and for you to lose that sense of reason that i'm actually quite safe here but yeah i I definitely had those thought pretty dark thoughts about god leaving russ without a, a mom and um yeah taking unnecessary risk and is this worth it and um yeah, that was mostly the, I guess, the first day for me when I was also feeling super intimidated by how far we had to go and the pace that we were moving behind these other parties. And um, yeah, there was actually a, a pretty distinct turning point for me where I was able to kind of turn that off and relax and really enjoy that. It was like after the Great Roof, where I actually was, uh, I was pretty gripped through that pitch. I was just, I think, just super anxious about my execution of it, which ended up going fine. It wasn't as bad as I had built it up to be. And then, um, actually the sun went down, um, following the great roof and we still had a couple pitches to go. And so it was obviously dark, even though we had, had good moonlight. And so all you could really see is what's in your headlamp in front of you. And that was really helpful. You forget about all the exposure and what's behind you. And actually it was a really cool moment. There is a I don't know what type of instrument that was playing in the meadow. Some, someone came by the meadow and was just playing like a saxophone, playing it like was, a jazz saxophone. Yeah, it was beautiful. Like right when the obviously I guess, a super quiet night. It was like just the an sound hour after of the sun this. went down. It's probably like eight thirty or nine. And so it was like dead quiet on the wall, except for this like slow saxophone in it. I mean, the sound, it felt like he was, like, playing a private concert for you. I mean, even though we were, we must have been 20 pitches up at that point. Yeah. And so, yeah, with the darkness and just, like, looking into your headlamp and focusing on what you had in front of you and hearing that. Yeah, that was um, super cool. It was a really cool moment. Yeah, aid aid climbing at night is amazing. Um, It's so much, I mean, aid climbing in the day is fine, too, but there's something about, aid climbing is so much more. Um, easy aid, uh, let me say easy aid climbing, like you find on the nose is so much more just about, um, settling into a rhythm and about the process 
of just not really thinking too much or closely examining your actions, but just executing. So step high up, place the piece, you know, clip the ladder, get in the neck, get into your other ladder, you know, take the previous one, either back clean the last cam or don't depending on the situation, but like, and then just without stopping there and looking around, you just walk up your next ladder, Fifi into the loop or whatever the highest point you can reach is, and then just do the next Pete, right? And you, you just don't allow yourself all of these little moments of stopping and thinking. You just kind of settle into this doing process and not being able to see more than like a few feet around you in any direction really helps keep the distractions to a minimum. You know, you're not looking down at the last belay to see what everyone's doing or looking up to see how far you have to go or looking at the view. I mean, there's just nothing else to think about. And so it is kind of nice to climb at night. You know, it can be, it can be stressful because you just, you know, after a full day, you're just like, I just want to get there. I just want to be done. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's super nice to, to do at night, but, um, yeah, it seems like a kind of a physical expression of like the mental state you have to get into. Yeah. It's just like being yeah. that kind of focused kind of also thank God that it was like a slow saxophone and not like I know. someone like <laughs> learning to play the fiddle. Or yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, a, right. Totally. Yes. Some like, yeah. Aspiring bagpiper. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, you just like contemplate. Just yeah. kill me now. Yes. Just like, yeah. <laughs> like I will dig death. Just breaking reeds on the saxophone, you know? Um, yeah, no, I, I want to get back to your question a, a minute ago about, about safety and, and Russell and stuff like that. And I, I think the only thing that I would add to Katie's answer was that um, the, I mean, the nose felt extremely safe, yeah. I thought, like very safe. Um, there's always, you know, that objective hazard with rock climbing. And the only time that I really felt that rear its head in the nose experience was <clears throat> on the second to last pitch. So at the, at the very last belay, I'm thinking of the, the, Death, the block. death block, yeah. yeah. So the last belay before the the head wall pitch, the for the final pitch, is called the wild stance. Below the wild stance is this. Um, it's like a deep, kind. It's like a it's like a giant flare that almost like forms a cave. This recession in the wall, and so that's called the alcove. And you climb up this crack, and you dip into the alcove, and then you kind of come back out the roof and you step around the corner to the belay to the wild stance. And as you come around the corner, you're presented with this. It's like a small, like four foot obelisk, essentially this little tooth of rock. that's basically just standing there. Um, it's got an X of chalk on it. I, um, I mean, I, I touched it. Like I, I knocked on it to see how loose I thought it was. It didn't seem like it was like fully wobbling, but it also doesn't, when you look at it, for a second, it's also very clear that you don't want to pull on it, but it's right where you would want something to be to just like mantle up onto this ledge. And it's very hard not to pull on this mm-hmm. or not, not to have the instinct to pull on it. And, um, and so then there's the, there's the risk of like the leader pulling on it, but then there's also, if you then go up and just build the anchor, when your second comes around and they clean out the last piece, the rope is going to be running right over this block. And so you have to go come around the corner, climb up for a foot. And there's this thin little seam that you're able to get either a stopper or um, like a C3 size piece in something pretty small, which keeps the rope like cleanly away from this block. But the whole time that you're on the route, you're sort of banking on the fact that like nobody is up there fucking that up. Right. Um, 
Because if this thing were to go, it would just fall down the top dihedral and then just bowling bowling ball down the route. You know, be right. completely devastating. Especially at the end of like days of dehydrated climbing to have oh, yeah. for people to like have the mental bandwidth to just like right not do the obvious intuitive things. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the hardest things about aid climbing in general and where so much time seems like it's it's easy to be lost. You know, for us especially is that idea of thinking ahead and saying, well, you know, not only like where's the rope going right now or where am I headed as the leader right now, but also where is the rope going to be coming from in the future or where are we leaving this pitch to head off? And so like keeping track of not only like what the need is in the moment, but also what the, what you're going to need things to be. And your second's going to need things to look like. Yeah. yeah. And, and in this case, it's like, okay, well, I can just avoid climbing on this block. And then you build the anchor, but maybe not considering that the rope for the follower, which at that moment doesn't run near the block. But once they clean all the gear out of the pitch, then it will. Right. And so it's, there's a, there's a lot of stuff on the route where you, you have the opportunity to waste a lot of time by not considering those future um, you know, future scenarios. Right. Cause then it's changed and you know, you're like, Oh, well now all of a sudden the rope runs over the haul bag and I can't free the haul bag easily. And so then you're doing this big, crazy untie retie, blah, blah, blah. Whereas it's just much, much easier initially. If you try to picture what it's going to look like in 20 minutes and then you clip it in either on top of or underneath based on, you know, how you're going to have to deconstruct things later. And that's hard. It, like a really crowded hanging belay with not with, you know, two bolts and whatever else you find. And yeah. Potentially if there's like other teams yeah. around or, or that kind of thing, you know, for, so for example, this, um, the German team that we shared the route with, we lost so much time at the King swing and, and the boot flake pitch, um, you know, with the Japanese team who went first on day two that we ended up Katie, when she was following would tag up the German team's lead line. And so they, instead of having to lead the pitch, could just jug their fixed line and they essentially would be um, moving at whatever pace we were moving at, right? Because we would just t bring their rope up with ours, which I think, say, you know, it saved them a lot of time. They were sort of moving, you know, they spent a whole day going from Dolt Tower to El Cap Tower, for example. Like they they were gonna, they were slated to be on the wall for six days at least at the pace they were moving. And, and so this, this allowed them to, Originally, they were like, oh, well, this will help us regain some of the time that we've lost thus far. Um, but we ended up tagging their line up from El Cap Tower all the way to the top, essentially. So for day two and day three, mm -hmm. Katie tagged their line the whole way up, which, you know, we were happy to do. It's not it's not like a huge problem. And it's like they were super fun. And so it was like just cool to be climbing with another team and that kind of thing. Um, and plus, like they were not necessarily going to finish if – they were not coming with us, you know, if they were kind of left at their own pace, it's not clear they would have finished or, you know, maybe they would have, um, found themselves in like a big traffic jam with other parties that were going to be coming up below us and stuff. And I think they were pretty keen to not be in that situation. The way that this is related to what we were talking about earlier with, with, um, with that, you know, having to spend all this time thinking ahead is I definitely took me a little while to settle into a rhythm of building the anchors such that, it could accommodate all of this stuff. So I would get up there and I would have to build an anchor where I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is the, where I'm going to fix the lead line. So Katie's going to come up on this side. This is where I'm going to want to dock the haul bag. So the haul bag and the haul line is going to be over on the other side to try to maybe keep the ropes separate. 
But then Katie brings up the German team's lead line, which has to get fixed to this anchor somewhere. And then as I'm climbing the next pitch, they're jugging their lead line and then two haul bags of theirs or two haul bags and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and then this has to all be done in a way such that <clears throat> when it's Katie, when I finish the next pitch and it's Katie's turn to leave, she has to be able to take all of our gear and free our haul bag and separate our stuff from their stuff so that she can lead, I can haul and we can tag their line. And so building the anchors deliberately so that it could accommodate all of that stuff not just in one moment, but also then being like taken down and, and rebuilt each time. Took me like a, a little while, like a few pitches to get into the habit of doing this smart in a smart way. Anyway, that was that was a, re- a real challenge for sure. Yeah, it was a good lesson in in how important it is to to think about, you know, not just what's fast and convenient right now, but what's going to save me time later. Because the first few times I would like build this anchor and then when I would try to get out of it, I'd be like, well, fuck, <laughs> you know, everything's clipped to everything else. And it's like, God damn. One thing I was thinking, of, I was trying to think of like which listeners, if they're maybe psyched on doing this and like a few things that we were like, oh man, I'm really glad we brought this. Mm-hmm. If that would be useful to include in this. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to think, I think the hydration pack was a good call because uh, I know on walls you've done before, you just said, you know, leading, you just... You know, it's hard to have time to get in the haul bag, and you're often without the haul bag, i.e. the water. And so um, we've got a really small, light, uh, tight-fitting hydration pack, and that was um, great to keep the leader, um, yeah, at least give you access to water. And I think— Oh, that was nice, yeah, because yeah. you can—it's um, it, there's like, it's easy to tell yourself, oh, I'm just going to—I'll I'll keep stuff in the top of the haul bag, and when I need it, I'll just dig into it. But the haul bag's hanging on something. It's got this clamshell opening. It's like— it's enough of a barrier that you frequently don't. And then all of a sudden you've gone half the day and you haven't really drank much water and stuff. Especially and the first few days when you would think you're – with the amount of time you're spending at a belay, you would think you would have time to hang out, look around, and get in the hall bag whenever you want. And uh, what at least yeah. not so for me, at least the first day or two. It's trying to keep everything organized and straight and work out the yeah. the knots that you're getting and, um, you know, prep for all the lower outs. And uh, it's belays are really – busy times. Yeah. Cause you know, if you're belaying on the wall in a, you know, in a, in like a efficient way, you should be preparing to leave the belay a little while before your leader even reaches the next anchor, you know, and like getting ready to have stuff packed up or perform the lower out or free the bag or whatever it is. Um, yeah. So like, just like Katie said, you know, you run out of time really fast, but if you have a hydration pack on, mm-hmm. like I was able to get up to the, to, the let's say I get to a ledge and there's the bolts and I'm going to start working on the anchor, you know, I could clip my daisies into the bolts and start building things. And I can just be drinking water from put the hose, in hose mouth, yeah. like while I'm using two hands to build the anchor. So it's like, I'm not stopping to do anything, you know? And then once a day in the middle of the day, you refill your hydrate one or one and a half liter hydration pack. And, you know, without having to work particularly hard, you arrive at the end of the day, much more well hydrated. Another thing with water I wish we had done was reinforce that we just bought the jug straight from the grocery store that had this flimsy plastic tape handle. And um, I wish we had reinforced that. Mm. Um, Yeah. We also, I say the one thing I wish we hadn't done was buy a bip and bop meal. I would say absolutely do not bring anything (laughs) bip and bop. Yeah, don't go adventurous with your freeze-dried food. Totally. The Germans added misadventure with mac and cheese as well. So. Uh, they, yes, that's right. They um, did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say yeah. we found any. Don't like, stray from your normal diet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're so psyched to have an American meal. And 
Um, anyway, the speaking of yeah. that, <laughs> yeah. I'd say we didn't find any like amazing bars, and in fact, I may never oh, bars are yeah eat a bar or a snicker again. But uh, let's try this uh, backpackers think, yeah. uh, lobster fraudy <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Seriously. The cheese sticks might have been like the best snack. Oh yeah, yeah. String, yeah, string cheese is is unreal. Yeah. Is there any other equipment string or hardware cheese. that you were like, we could have done without this? Mm. You shouldn't have um, brought that golf umbrella. To the- yeah, yeah I exactly. Too much yeah, can you hand me the parasol? Yeah. <laughs> um, Man, I brought too, we brought too much warm clothes. It actually, yeah, yeah. We, I thought it was gonna be cold sure. at night, and it wasn't. Yeah, it was probably smart to bring anyway. Yeah. Right. We we did have a little. We each probably could have left the one, um, like a mid layer behind. It'd been fine. Mm-hmm. And then um, the only stuff that we didn't use, uh, like I brought a number five that I'd never oh, used. Yeah. And so I would say, don't if you do go do the nose two fours and no fives is sufficient. Um, three fours if you if you don't want to just like, you know, um, go. If you don't want to leapfrog number fours for a ways here and there, then you should bring a third. But I thought two was pretty sufficient. And um, yeah, the only thing we didn't use was our raincoat and our first aid kit and sort of like that parachute type stuff where you're like, well, we're bringing this in case of emergency. Um, and so I felt pretty good about that. You know, we you know we had the rack, I guess, in a, in a place that was pretty reasonable. You know, we brought triples of most sizes, and I brought an inflatable sleeping pad, which I never got to inflate, so that was somewhat useless. Yeah. But is he you like didn't bring the portal ledge or anything, right? You we just d- slept straight onto yeah. the natural ledges. Yeah. yeah. Another team did have a portal edge. Actually, two of the teams, the guided team and the German team, had a portal edge, and they ended up using them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it it was fine not having a portal edge. But I would say that I was. I don't know what I was picturing, but I never really. Uh, there's not enough room to inflate the mattress, really. So, but his Eli takes up more room in the bag. So, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know which was better. Um, yeah, the the decision to not bring a portal edge is like, I think that there's plenty of room on the nose to sleep without one, but you, you know, you don't have a ton of backup options if the ledges, if the natural ledges are, are full, and so that's that's another thing when you know when we talk about like the advantages of slightly over preparing for a route like the nose. One of the major advantages is, you know, you have so much more flexibility. Um, like if you're a relatively fast team and you get to camp five and there's people already camped out there, well, then you can probably just, you know, dig a little bit deeper and make it to camp six, you know, but if that's going to take you five hours, maybe that's not a great option, you know? So, not the case for us because we were able to pass. So we got in front of the German team. They let us go and we were tagging their line. So they were sort of stuck behind us. And then we were actually able to pass the Japanese team on the, I think it's the Lin Hill Traverse, I guess. There's a variation where you can do this like, it's like a bolted variation that allows you to do this like 10D A0 climbing sort of. There's like bolts with these long, not long, but they're sort of like this, almost like a permadraw type of chain but without the carabiner at the end it was like tat on a bolt yeah it was like metal tat though it wasn't oh oh yeah um yeah it's like weird but but yeah essentially it's like this in situ metal um hanging from each bolt you mind if you're gonna split uh, yeah grab my clothes so i don't have to break back in yeah yeah (laughs) yeah we are recording in uh Russ's their closet. Up. Do you mind grabbing him? I think he's crying. Okay, just we can we can we can check back. I gotta. All right. 
So Katie took off to go to a meeting. Yep. Katie uh, did jet and go to work. Um, and we have replaced her with Russell, who is up from his nap and eating his book. Oh my a God. little little post-nap snack. And then, uh, he's so gross. Yes, he is disgusting. <laughs> he's so gross, baby. Yeah. <clears throat> um, anyway. Yeah, you know, so I, part of the reason maybe I should even back up even further in explaining this is like, um, I think that another reason why the nose gets done a lot is because it has a reputation for being an easy route. Pitch pitch for pitch, there's there's not like the, the nose is probably the easiest of those four walls that I've done um, just in terms of comparing crux moves or crux sequences or something like that. And, I, you know, none of those walls are, are especially hard, but the nose is, the, the no, if you're judging the nose on its hardest pitch, it's not a particularly hard route. It's maybe the best way to say this. And, um, and I think that that lures people, myself included, into this idea that you're, you're going to have an easy time on the route. And, you know, I was surprised both by how tiring the days were when you're climbing in walls, wall style. Like I totally appreciate now why, like why it's better to just go for it in a day if you, if that option is available to you. So I, you know, I was, I was impressed by how hard it was and surprised, I guess, by how hard it was in, in the overall effort sense of the word. And I was also surprised to find that like, I wasn't able to free climb at the level that I thought I was going to be able to free climb at for a variety of reasons. One, there's sometimes where it's just, you know, if the cam is already on in your hand or whatever, it's easy to just like, you know, leapfrog the cams up, like cam jumar as they, they call it. But, um, you know, in addition, I found that some of the pitches were a little bit like the rock felt a little bit slick in part because it was super hot out, you know, and you have a large rack on and you've got your lead line and you're trailing a haul line and, you know, and you've got some water on your person and, and stuff like that. And you, I just, you feel very weighed down and you're in the direct sun and, and all this stuff. And so all these factors combine to make every pitch that you're freeing feel just a teeny bit harder, you know? So in your mind, if you're going to free all the, you know, it's easy to look at the topo and you're just looking at the grades from, from the safety of your living room and be like, I want to free this pitch. I'm going to free this pitch. I'm going to free this pitch. Um, and sometimes it's just faster to not, you know, um, for example, like there's a lot of low five ten climbing that comes off, um, the belay after the great roof up the pancake flake. But, you know, if you, if you just did the great roof in, in eighters with approach shoes on, then, you know, it's probably faster for you to just pull on cams and then do some occasional free climbing up the pancake flake than it is for you to get into the hall bag, put on your climbing shoes, put away your approach shoes, you know, swap out the rack, get rid of the ladders so they're not in your way, like blah, blah, blah. That changeover might take you more time than you would save freeing this flake. And so, yeah, all the, all that stuff, I, I was I was surprised, but, you know, you, it just, it added time. I mean, you know, it slows you down a little bit to um, to be to be aiding or French freeing as opposed to just actually like fully freeing and charging hard. And so, yeah, I would, I, I do want to, like on the one hand, I think that the nose deserves its reputation as an accessible route. And I think if like one thing that I would say to people who are really keen to do it is that it, it really is an achievable goal. If you want to put in the work to get ready for it and like, you know, do the, all the, like the big wall stuff, it's, it's a totally reasonable route for, for most 
climbers. At the same time, you know, it, it was more than I was expecting it to be like the total effort, um, especially doing it in wall style. So is the main piece of advice that you would offer people who are psyched to do it to just kind of over-prepare? Yeah, I would say if I were to, uh, if somebody was saying, well, I really want to do this route, what would you say? Um, and how would you approach it? I would say to definitely like stay psyched because you can do it. You know, I think it is a totally achievable goal and it's super worthy route. It's like such a gorgeous line when you're looking at it from the meadow. I mean, it links all these classic features. It's got all this, you know, incredible climbing on it. I mean, it's a great route. And so it's totally worthy of, of your effort. Um, but I would, I would not make it your first wall, both because you want to, you know, on a route like that, you want to have a good time. You want to enjoy it. And so part of having a good time and enjoying those fun pitches is not undoing this giant rat's nest at every belay and being able to kind of like flow smoothly from pitch to pitch and stuff. And so if you really want to enjoy the route in the way that it can be enjoyed, I think you'll have a better experience if you're, if you've done a wall in the past or if, you know, you and your partner, especially have climbed a wall together, it's really, I think, beneficial. Um, don't make it your first wall for that reason. But then in addition, you know, there's the chance that you might, you know, cost another team their chance at the wall. If you're kind of going up there, cutting your teeth as you climb. Um, and this is a delicate balance to strike. Cause I think climbing is, is kind of chock full of this culture of just go for it and have the adventure and like really push yourself. And, you know, it's easy to bail off the nose. There's a wrap route, um, that you can access without too, too much trouble, relatively speaking from most parts of the route. And so, you know, I, I totally am down with the adventure culture of encouraging people to just like go out there and charge hard, but on a route like the nose or any other super classic route, you know, I mean, we see this stuff happen on like the North chimney on Castleton is like a mini version of this, or even the Bastille crack, you know? Yeah. You know, you can, there are a lot of, you just need to be, you need to balance your enthusiasm for going and your willingness to say, okay, this is going to be a little too hard for me, but I'm just going to push it. And if we end up spending 36 more hours on the route and we have this near epic, like that's just part of the adventure, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think you just want to balance that with the need to be courteous of other people who also want to do the route. You know, there are teams who are flying from the other half of the globe to come over and try this and they can't just come back. You know, they're not driving out from the bay three weekends later to try again if they get skunked kind of thing. And so I think that you, yeah, you want to push yourself, but you owe it to the rest of the community when routes become super sought after to, you know, try to make sure that you show up with like a good chance of doing it. Um, I, I would encourage people to try to adopt that mentality. Maybe when you're, when you're thinking about um, getting ready, you know, in the, in Yosemite, there's a ton of good practice walls to try. There's a lot in, um, in Zion, and you can also just practice the pitch by pitch skills at a local crag, you know, even a local sport crag, you know, you can practice lowering out, you can practice hauling the bag. Um, there's just not a great excuse to show up with, with no preparedness, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would, the other thing I would say is consider if you're a strong team, I would consider going in a day. Um, it's way less overall total work than doing it wall style, but it is a shitload of climbing. And so I would say that like, if, if you and your partner are like solid five eleven climbers, you could do the first 10 or so pitches to Dolt tower 
leave a gallon of water, come back down, rest a day. And then on the next day, just do the whole route in one push. Um, that would not be totally unreasonable. It's much easier to do, I think, now if you've done the route and you kind of know what's coming. But there's so much detailed information out there that you can really learn a lot about the nose, like way more than you can about almost every other route because the topos are super detailed. Um, and then there's just infinite discussion online about the nose and people's videos and et cetera, et cetera. And so there's, there's so much that you can go on out there. Um, we had the, we found the topos in the Eric Sloan, Roger Putnam, big wall, Yosemite big wall guidebook to be like super helpful and accurate. And then the other thing that I would recommend people do is even though we did it in a, in like the traditional big wall style, not in a day, we found that researching all the stuff that was out there from in a day parties to be like incredibly, incredibly helpful. A lot of the stuff that's listed for the strategies and tactics for in a day teams, you're not going to want to do because it just doesn't apply to you as a wall style team. But at the same time, if you go and you watch what people have put up online and, and what they have to say about the route, the in a day teams, there's such incredibly detailed discussion of pretty much every pitch on the route um, that you can really, you can take that information and even, you know, you're not going to do it in that single push style. Just, oh, you know, just skip right past all the stuff that you know, you're not going to do. Um, and then glean all the other information there. Like, um, you know, there's information out about what cams you need for each pitch and, you know, all sorts of like clever, um, time-saving tactics, like not bringing your bag up onto all the way up onto Dolt tower, if you're not going to sleep there and so forth. And, um, so we actually emailed, uh, Eric Sloan in advance. He had put up a post on mountain project. Um, I think at the beginning of the year saying, oh, I'm going to release a book on specifically the nose with nose in a day stuff in it. <laughs> and, um, and he, he had said, if anybody's going to do the nose soon, let me know, I'll send you the topos and you can give me some feedback on them and stuff. And so I, I reached out to him and I think, I thought it would be past this point. Um, but you know, he replied really quickly and sent over a bunch of topos both for the nose generally, but then also he has topos that are annotated specifically within a day tactics. Um, and even when you're not doing it in a day, I would recommend that people seek that stuff out. We found it to be super helpful, both Eric's, um, Eric's topos, but then also, you know, just other climbers who, who have done it in a day who are participating in a discussion about like, well, this is where we thought the most, the most convenient places to like stop and meet up again and exchange gear or like, you know, figuring out which pitches are going to be easy for you to short fix. Um, that kind of thing. You know, you can, you can read other people's you know, in a day strategies and be like, okay, well, we're obviously not gonna, like, if you're going to do it in a day, you're probably either simul climbing a lot or you're short fixing everything, which you're not going to necessarily do if you're going wall style. But, you know, listening to people talk about their experiences going for it in a day, it makes it, it makes it easier for you to figure out which pitches are going to be easy for you to short fix when you're going forward in, in big wall style. And, and, you know, and that can save you a lot of time. And that's stuff that's not necessarily discussed at length by parties who did the route in three days, like we did. Cause you know, there's just not, that's not as central a part of your strategy as it is when you're doing it in a day, when you're climbing the route in a day, it seems like it's all about having a, a like a, a time saving or time 
a, a good time management strategy. Um, and people have all like dozens and dozens of all these like clever hacks and tips that they've figured out for ways to save time. And, you know, some of them apply only to in a day teams, but some of them apply more universally. And that stuff just isn't as, as close to the heart of the conversation for teams who are doing it in wall style. Um, so I would definitely recommend that people, if you're going to do it, even if you're not planning on doing it in a day, spend a lot of time digging through the, in a day, um, research, like do, do that, do that research also. Cause we found it to be really helpful. Any um, other advice that you would give? Um, uh, you know, the information that's out there is pretty good. I thought the ledges, um, the natural ledges to sleep on were pretty good. Camp four was not amazing, but, or didn't look amazing. Camp five and camp six both looked pretty great. El Cap tower and Dolt tower are both pretty great. Um, so I would say, <clears throat> I, I would I would say that most parties would be comfortable not bringing a portal edge. Um, for the same amount of weight, you know, you can probably bring an extra two gallons of water. And so it seems like it might just be better to have the two gallons and the portal edge for a lot of teams. Um, no, that's about it. Yeah, we didn't do any, there was no like, we didn't even really do any tricky aid stuff. I mean, I think I used our cam hook once or twice. I didn't do any other hooking. Excuse me. I didn't do any other hooking. Um, yeah, just used, I didn't even use this, like our stoppers all that much, like a couple times, you know, it's like mostly just cams and offsets and, you know, the occasional like offset micro stopper, but like really mostly straightforward stuff. Um, a couple pitches where the aid was awkward, but not hard. Um, yeah, all in all, just like, you know, again, not a lot of stopper shut you down climbing, just a lot of climbing generally um like a lot of moderate free climbing and moderate aid climbing um and that, that was really the the hard part and so i would say um i would say go into it if you know if it's something that you want to do go into it with high confidence that you'll be able to tackle whatever it is um but go into it also knowing that the crux is not really any one pitch so much as just you know how how efficient are your systems you know, how efficient are you able to go from one pitch to the next and, and settle into a rhythm and that kind of thing. And so, you know, I, I would, I would encourage people to, to approach the preparation with that mentality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Um, I wanted to circle back to the death block that's at the very top of the oh, route. Yeah. 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 Um, so you've mentioned that because this is such a popular route that there's this kind of like responsibility to other climbers and everything. Right. I don't know. Is there, is there any kind of agreed upon approach to the, like a threat like that from a community standpoint, or is that literally just like, well, just wait for it to come off or hope that it comes off in the winter or, you know, do, um, I think there usually any, the any latter. kind of active management that happens there. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, this is a national park and so I'm sure it's subject to, you know, specific protocol, but, um, I mean, I would say generally speaking, that stuff is just kind of baked into what's considered the objective hazard of rock climbing, you know? Um, it's all stuff that's on a sort of a sliding scale. I mean, you know, how loose is loose, you know, that you need to either trundle it or, or reinforce stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff that people clean off routes, they need a crowbar to get off, you know? Um, and so... Like it's good to, it's good. If that stuff is going to come off eventually, yeah, it's like nice to have it off. But I mean, if it's 30 pitches up on the nose, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, you're just going to like 
push it off. Um, yeah, I mean, you could epoxy the, it in place. I mean, there's like maybe other stuff you could do, but anyway, it's it's difficult. You know, it's it's tough to know when to step in and when not to. And and if you want to remove a giant block from a route that's three thousand feet up, it's it's almost like well, can we do that safely? You know, right? The park would have to like step in and close the route and it's like right near the base it's right near the meadow i mean where when would you do that it's like one of the busiest national parks you know right it's not as if they don't have way too much on their plate already exactly and then i mean it's not like it's just then it opens the door to like well are you going to go in and ask the park to replace the bolts when they get old and you know no i mean essentially the park allows climbers to to do that stuff you know if the fixed lines coming down from heart ledges are worn out it's on the climbers to replace them or the fixed lines that are on the east ledges descent from el cap you know um the park is kind of like this is your playground like go and tend to your shit um and in exchange they you know they don't issue permits and right don't tell you so we can't climb an el cap and blah 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 yeah and so it's difficult. This does feel like one of the disadvantages of um, having what is, you know, there are a lot of advantages to kind of having that very kind of hands-off community active management engagement mm-hmm. without kind of like larger bodies stepping in. But this does feel like an example to me of something where that much more active role to have a body to that could make a decision like that um, could play, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I totally see what you're saying. And I think that there is a balance to be struck between acknowledging the fact that these, some of these routes get a lot of traffic and we should just try to, if a lot of people are going to be there, we should just try to make them safe, you know? Um, you know, it's kind of the reasoning behind like having a rappel route all the way down the nose and stuff like that. You could just be like, nope, you know, it's on you get up the route, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is there's a lot of people. It helps people bail if a lot of parties are going to be bailing. And so at some point you have to yield to pragmatism. And I think that the same line of reasoning can be applied to some instances of like loose rock and so forth. And, you know, I know that, for example, like in Eldo, they've gone in and like closed certain trails briefly and they have people just kind of like making sure that there's no hikers nearby. And then they'll like, I think they like kick a big block off of, uh, you know, a ledge or some loose block. It's just waiting to kill someone. Um, but you can't, that's an unwin, the battle against loose rock on climbs is an unwinnable war. Um, you know, loose rock be, you know, rock becomes loose season after season, just from the freeze thaw. Um, and there's just a ton of it, you know, it's, it's the, it's like the wilderness, right? It's, it's wild terrain. Um, and I think that there's, we need to make climbing safe and accessible within reason, but not in a way that tamps down on the very important understanding that, you know, this is a dangerous environment where, you know, you're, you need to be self-sufficient and the objective hazard is there. Um, you know, rock fall, you, you know, that giant rock scar on the right side of El Cap. I mean, you know, these things do happen. Um, you know, the two pitches fell off the regular route on half dome a few years ago. It's like, well, you know, to some extent, leaving that in place brings brings that situation more in line with the way that climbing is generally, like in its natural environment. Um, totally. I think I would 
I feel like with something like the nose though, A, it's such a long route. So there's so many people on it at yeah. once and it's so outrageously popular and yeah. has people camping out at the bottom that it seems to have an almost unnaturally exaggerated kind Definitely. of um, mm -hmm. consequences mean, for those kinds of risks sure. compared to... Yeah, or like a high likelihood of injury if the block does go. It's not like a route that sees two ascents per year. Right, whereas I feel like the, the ethic of climbing that you're talking about speaks more to this kind of like... Well, we all agree that climbing is like not yes. a mainstream sport. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, no, totally. I, I think that when, you know, when routes become very heavily trafficked and stuff like that, or, you know, not that people were like literally sleeping at the base, but when we were down low on the route, there's always people who, hikers who come up to like look up the wall from the base or like touch the wall or like, you know, say hi to the climbers or whatever. And so there's a lot of even tourists like at the base of the route. Um. Yeah, you know, it's I, I as far as like that block goes, I kind of see it both ways. And I would not like if somebody I can see this being like a huge sort of schism in the community if this is ever kind of like widely discussed. But if somebody was like, hey, I, you know, we went up there and we got rid of that block, I would be like, good. Like, no problem. I don't have a huge ethical problem with this. Um, like if someone, I don't know. I'm for the most part, I err on the side of like, let's kind of like leave things and let people do them on their own. At the same time, I, I'm not really willing to like let my blood boil over those issues. You know, I mean, I might have an opinion and if I'm just voting in a democratic sense, I might say, meh, um, to like, whatever, I don't know, for fixed lines or, or something like that. I might just say like, nah, we can let people bring their own lines to rappel on or something. But yeah, you know, if somebody's like, hey, the East Ledges descent gets done like so much, I'm going to install some, I don't even know what, you know what I mean? I don't know. I'd be like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like I'm, I'm over it. I don't care. Um, I just don't. I don't, I don't necessarily, I think a lot of people feel like something close to the core of climbing is dying every time like those things get in and like the greatness of Yosemite is reduced whenever there's like a way to bail off the nose or there's fixed lines or, you know, we're asking the park to step in and like clean things up or blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, I tend to side with those arguments, but I'm, I'm also like, I'm not willing to die on that hill. Right. Right. I don't really care that much. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I, we can post a picture of the, of the block in the, in the yeah. show notes, but yeah, man. Anyway, um, anything else you wanted to cover? I guess my, my other thought, I think I might've even mentioned this earlier in this conversation, but my other thought for people, if they, if they want to do this is to is definitely be open to the other routes that are there in that area, you know, having done lurking fear with our, our friend, Matt, you know, I thought that route was gorgeous and super cool. And, um, you know, the second baby, you get to sleep in this amazing cave up on Thanksgiving ledge, like just right on the side of the cliff. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I, th I think it's totally, I could get why people are motivated by the nose. Um, but I would definitely encourage people to, to not get super tunnel vision about it. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Dude, congrats again on Thanks, like man. this, you know, real, lifelong goal and achievement here yeah thank you it was um you know it was really uh 
it's really cool. You know, I'm, I'm still really stoked on it. And yeah, it's just a, it was a really fun thing to be able to do. I feel really fortunate to, uh, to have had the chance and, and have had a little bit of good luck to make it happen and stuff. So, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, and I remember, you know, it's so crazy to think back to 10 years of us being in the meadow. Yeah. We, we were on the PCT. Backpacking the PCT and yeah. looking up. And I remember you saying like, well, I'm going to climb that someday. And yeah. here we are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, here we are. Exactly. After the climb. Um, yeah. It felt like because that type of climbing, aid climbing in general, but also, you know, having to have the systems work efficiently on a route that's, um, that's long, <clears throat> it sort of felt like the final exam from like, you know, 10 years of rock climbing. And I'm, I don't think you need 10 years runway for most people to climb this. But for me, it felt like I, w I really needed to put to work all of the stuff that I had, you know, like learned over a long period of time. Um, and so that, you know, that just made it like, it just made it a satisfying thing to, you know, to eventually tick off. So cool. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to see if this affects your relationship with climbing going forward. And yeah, me too. I mean, it makes me not want to have, I'm pretty excited to not have like anything any big goals coming up and to kind of just like climb for type one fun yeah go cragging blah 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 mm -hmm. um, so I'm really stoked to just do that for a while um, but yeah we'll see it'll be interesting cool man yeah love you dude love you too man thanks for listening we'll be back soon but in the meantime check us out on iTunes give us a rating and leave us some feedback we'd love to hear from you <laughs>